All right. Good morning. Uh, welcome to Chanel. I think we've gonna. I'm gonna I don't want JJ to feel. Uh, he's a humble guy. Do we have that picture of JJ Rob? He he took a picture at our selfie station. Um, if we've got it, there it is. We. I want JJ to be appreciated, and so there's that picture. Um, so anyway, move, moving on. Um, we're excited that you're here with us this morning. Uh, we're glad that you're at Chanel with us today. Uh, we, you know, we, we hope you come back. Uh, Chanel is a place where uh, we, we love each other. We consider ourselves a family. And if you want to be a part of that family, we want to make room for you. We'll add a chair at the table for you. So uh, before I, I jump into the sermon, I found a quote this week that I really liked about Mother's Day. Um, and I think Rob's got it here. It's from Dorothy from the Golden Girls, but it says, It's not easy being a mother. If it were easy, fathers would do it. And so I saw that quote, and I thought I could share it this morning, just to say, as kind of JJ, echoing the words of JJ earlier, but we are thankful for our moms. We're thankful for you, uh, for what you do for your families, for this church, and we appreciate you. And so remember the words of Dorothy today, uh, and this is kind of a marker as well, like you get to pick lunch. Uh, Whitney, we're not eating at Slim Chickens today. We're going to go where you want to go. So make, make sure that you're honored properly today. So we are jumping back into our sermon on Acts this morning. Um, church on Mission, and today we're talking about the perfect example that we see in Acts chapter 2, uh, where the church really begins to gain momentum uh, in the earlier stages of this book. Now, Luke includes a different story than we talked about last week with the Great Commission. Uh, Luke kind of just goes right after the ascension of Jesus, but in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, uh, Luke writes this uh, from the words of Jesus, "...but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you." And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This, this sentence here that Jesus says before he ascends is a powerful instruction into what individuals of, of Jesus are supposed to be doing. This idea that we are to be witnesses encapsulates our, our identities in the way that we treat others, the way that we see people, the way that we talk to them, uh, maybe perhaps the way that we tweet about them. It, it changes everything about us when we become individuals that are witnesses of Jesus. And, and last week we talked a little bit about the differences between a mandate and a calling. This is another one of those mandate instances where this isn't, some of us get to be witnesses, some of us don't. Like we are all mandated to be witnesses of Jesus through our actions and our words. But Acts kind of starts very rapidly with Pentecost. And so in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost came, uh, this is about 50 or so days after Easter, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, if you've read Acts chapter 2, like this is kind of a, this is kind of what you think about when you think of Acts chapter 2. They're all gathered together, the Holy Spirit has come upon them, and now they're starting to speak in tongues. Now, in in this context of Acts chapter 2, the tongues are earthly languages. Everyone understands these languages that they're speaking. Uh, These are not kind of angelic languages that maybe you're familiar with, but this is just, these are earthly languages these individuals are understanding. But it's a miraculous thing that's occurring here at Pentecost. Now, what I I think is fascinating about this, and if you're you're looking at Acts chapter 2 right now, there is immediately a concern that these individuals are intoxicated. Um, And and I love the way that Peter is about to begin his sermon, and we're going to get there in just a moment. But there's this concern there that something else is happening. 
that there, there's something maybe earthly that is causing these individuals to speak in tongues like this. And, and Peter basically says, like, that's not the case. That is not what is going on here in the slightest. But you see, the power of the Holy Spirit comes on them that does this miraculous thing. And this, the idea of the Holy Spirit moving through the book of Acts is a major thematic thing that we see. Of, of trusting in the Holy Spirit to move through our lives, through our communities, through our actions. And you're seeing that develop very quickly. What happens is they say, these people are drunk. There's no way they could be speaking in tongues like this. And then Peter stands up in verse 14. He stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Now, I, kind of in the Mother's Day thing, I think a lot about like that, if y'all don't stop it, we're turning this car around. Like, that's what it felt like to me with Peter. I don't know if you've been on those trips where it's like, it doesn't matter that we're crossing the line into Florida. If y'all don't stop it, we're going home. And Peter basically, he raises his voice. So he addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now that is one, one way to start a sermon, in my opinion. That kind of declaration of let me just like kind of level the field here. I think that if I started that sermon, I would have a follow-up lunch with the elders after that. But the, the point is, is, is Peter is, is really trying to lay the foundation so what I'm about to tell you is so vital that you get it. You really need to get your head straight and listen, clear your minds, be willing to accept where I'm about to take you with the Holy Spirit. And we have to do that a lot, right? Like with maybe with kids, families, situations like that, we have to say, hey, I need you to slow down for just a moment and listen to me. Listen to what I'm trying to tell you here in this moment. And that's what Peter's doing is listen, stop for just a minute and hear what I'm about to say. And Peter does something that is powerful in this sermon. Because what Peter does is he, he goes to the hits, the classics. I, I've recently been trying to teach Judah the classics of my, my, of my life of music. My favorite song in the history of all music is Garth Brooks, Standing Outside the Fire. I will fight you. This is the greatest song that has ever been written. I love it. It pumps me up. It pumps Judah up before baseball. It's just something that we do as a family. But when I think about like the, the hits, the classics, that's where I'm going. I'm going right to Garth Brooks. And what Peter does, I, there was a weird laugh there. Uh, I guess Dr. Westbrook's not a fan of Garth Brooks. But, um, but all I'm trying to say is what Peter does is he's, he's calling attention to, I'm about to take you kind of old school. Like I'm about to show you where God is leading you. But before I do that, I've got to go to the Old Testament. And so what Peter does is he goes straight into Joel. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I'll show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and the dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. And he goes to Joel with this, this powerful, scary passage that calls us to salvation. That's the purpose of using this text here. What Peter is doing is this kind of this preaching technique where he's laying kind of the foundation to where he's going. Now, a lot of us who maybe have, have studied Acts, we know that Peter is, is drawing our attention to that Acts 2, uh, 38 through 42 about repent and be baptized. And that's where he's going. He's building the foundation for that with this passage of there's a day that is coming where you're going to need to be saved. 
There's a, a moment in your life where you're going to be need, need to recognize, to repent, be baptized. He's drawing our attention to that and laying the foundation for that. And so not to be stopping with Joel, he goes into Psalm. Psalm 16, 8 through 11. I keep my eyes on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to, the, to, to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. You see what he's doing? Like, if, you, if you're listening to this sermon, if we're the individuals that Peter is preaching to, think about this. We just heard this need of salvation. But there is a day that is coming where we will have to reflect on our lives and think, hey, am I in or am I out? And he goes into this passage in Psalm chapter 16 where David is talking about trusting in the God. We just talked a little bit about trusting in the Holy Spirit. We're, we're laying that foundation for where he's going at the end of this, this passage. But Peter is, is painting this picture of the need for God. The reason why you need to be saved. The reason why you need to repent and be baptized. He's calling them into a new life. And in just a little bit, he's going to introduce them into this idea of practicing the kingdom of God. But to do that, Peter has to introduce these, these classics, these hits, per se, where he's going back to Joel and he's talking about this is why you need salvation. And he's referencing the Psalm of David where he's saying this is what it means to trust in God. And he goes into Psalm 110 as well. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now the people that, that Peter is talking to need deliverance. There are a lot of social issues that are happening at the time of this early church. And there are food shortages. There, there are needs that need to be met. And Peter is offering them a hope for salvation, a new life, a new kingdom to be a part of. And rightfully so, the people hear this sermon and they just start saying, okay, what? I like this, Peter. What do I need to do to be a part of this? What do I need to do to be a part of something that is bigger than myself? And that's where Peter goes in to chapter 2, verse 38-39, Peter replied to them who asked what they should do. He says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. In my tradition, uh, the Church of Christ tradition, a lot of times like this is our focus point of this text. We, we zero in on it, and we say, this is it. This is all we got to do. And friends, like, if, if that is the only thing that you're hitching your wagon to in Acts chapter 2, you've missed a lot of what God is doing in this community. Because one, the Holy Spirit is at work hard in this community of Acts chapter 2. And yes, they are being led into salvation. That is where Peter is directing them with this passage. The, 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 the symbolism of baptism is beautiful and powerful and necessary. It's something that we do as a church family, as a community, where somebody says, I no longer want to be the old self. I want to be made new. And we enter into the baptism. We repent of our sins. We reflect on that. We come out a new person. It's a beautiful and necessary act that we do. But if we just stop right there, we miss what God is doing in this community. Now, I'm going to stop right there and switch gears and tell you a story from 1950. So in 1950, this is another food talk that I like to do, but in 1950, the Betty Crocker Company came out with cake mix. This was, at the time, a revolutionary product. 
Um, when they, they developed it, they thought this is going to blow people's minds. It's going to change the cake industry forever. Because what Betty Crocker actually developed with this particular cake mix was you only had to add water. And they thought this thing is going to fly off the shelves. And they, in, in their kind of uh, their notes, were very proud of this product, and rightfully so. They've revolutionized the cake making game. Now, for crowd participation purposes, how well do you think that this particular product sold? Do you think they sold a lot or a little? I'm getting some heads, so some people are saying no. It's correct. They didn't sell any of this. They came out and they thought, we are going to change the game of cakes. We're going to blow people's minds. This is going to be fantastic. But there wasn't a, they didn't sell any of this product. Now, some of you participated, so why, you can just shout it out, why do you think that no one bought this product? This is awesome. This is the preacher's dream. I get to tell you. Um, fantastic. They actually did market research. They hired psychologists because the Betty Crocker company could not figure out why people were not buying this product. It consumed them to the point that they hired psychologists, they started doing market research, and the word that they kept coming back to was guilt. Now think about that for just a moment. These individuals thought that they had revolutionized the cake-making game, and the reason why consumers were not buying this product was guilt. What they found was people thought that there's no way that making a cake should be this easy. Yeah. They'd come up with this concept where all you had to do was add water to the mix and no one touched it. And so the people of Betty Crocker decided, we've got this product that we know will make making cakes easier. So what are we going to do? I think we've got two more slides. This is just a cake. Um, (laughs) Let's go to the next one. They changed it up and they added an egg. They went back. They redesigned kind of their their marketing research. They went back, looked at the, the ingredients, and they made it to where... Customers could now buy the product, add an egg, and then add the mixture in there with water. This product sold. It sold so fast and so ridiculously that it really helped build the empire that was Betty Crocker. Now, the reason why I'm telling that story is not to get you hungry or to put you on the prayer. If you haven't done something for your, your wife or your mother, this is on you. You're late in the game. Maybe you need to go by Kroger and get a Betty Crocker cake mix. I don't know. The sermon is not sponsored by Betty Crocker. But anyway, the reason why I'm telling that story is because sometimes people want to work harder when it's unnecessary. The only reason why Betty Crocker had to add the egg is because people felt guilty. And they thought there's no way that making a cake should be this simple. It should never be this easy. When in fact it was. All they had to do was add water, but they wouldn't do it. And so when they added an egg, people just started buying this off the shelves. And there are cake mixes today that just have water, but a lot of them now have have cake or have eggs, they have the vegetable oil, like different steps to make it harder when it doesn't need to be. There is something that is beautiful about the simplicity of the way the early church develops. Often we make church so difficult and challenging, and we add a bunch of steps in there and requirements where church was never intended to be rocket science. It was never intended to be something that people couldn't access or be a part of. 
And you see the way that the early church develops it is not through, through programs and metrics and, and, and market research. The way the early church develops is because they cared about each other. And they lived in community with one another. One of the things that we talked about a little bit last week was the idea that, that we're constantly searching for these mountain peak moments. But we often just live and navigate the valleys of life. The early church invites us into that. It shows us what it looks like to live within those valleys as a church community, not constantly chasing those, those, those mountain peak moments, but living in the day-to-day with our fellow believers. And so the text continues in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the, uh, <clears throat> by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So we often we look at what the early church experienced, that immediately they have 3,000 added to their number. And we look and they say, okay, it's the baptism thing. That is how people are growing. That is how this church is moving, is the people are repenting and they're baptizing. But then when we look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we see that the growth is really coming from the day-to-day life. Yes, Jesus calls us into baptism and repentance. But the way that this church, this community is growing and thriving is because they are existing together outside of the church walls. I mean, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship they're, they're studying God's Word. That's what they're doing. They're, they're di- diving into Scripture. They're spending time with God in Scripture, looking at where God is leading them in those passages. To the breaking of bread and to prayer, they're sharing in communion with one another. I think that even the earliest church probably had some concern with the way that the bread tasted a little bit. I don't know. We don't see that in here. But it's a little joke for the people that don't like the communion cups. But we see they're, they're communing. They're, they're sharing in communion with one another. Praying for one another. Everyone was filled with awe at the wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. I mentioned this in class this morning that I don't think at all that everyone had everything in common. This to me seems to be like Luke saying that they cared so much about being unified that their divisions were overshadowed. That they let their differences go to the side because they were willing to commit to one another. And you see this in how their, their actions follow up from this point. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. I don't know, I mentioned this again in class, but I don't know if you've ever read one of those, like, those Francis Chan you know, books where you're like, you're like, I'm selling the car. The car is gone. I've just read this book. Like, I don't think that's what's happening here, where they're actually like, selling their cars. But what they're saying is the needs of others are more important than my needs. So Luke is, is modeling this community of growth and fellowship where they care about one another. They're willing to put the needs of others before their own. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They had community. They reached out. They connected. They made sure that their fellow believer like, was okay. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. When you hear me talk about the need for table fellowship, this is my biblical reference. It is important to eat meals together with people that you care about. There's something special and spiritual that happens when we gather together at a table that's not at church, that happens outside of the church walls. 
Food unites us. It excites me, but it unites us. But think about the conversations you've had over a meal that maybe you've cooked, you've bought, or whatever. There's something that happens in those meals that you're seeing that in the early church. They're growing because they're leaning into each other's lives outside of the church walls. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. That is probably my favorite line in this passage other than the food thing. But that they just enjoyed being around each other. Like church needs to be fun. We need to be excited to be around one another. We need to enjoy fellowship outside of the church walls. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Friends, that is where the growth comes from. Is that passage called the Fellowship of Believers. One of my favorite professors in school, Dr. John Mark Hicks, uh, recently wrote a book, and and he he referenced practicing the kingdom of God. And in this, he writes, practicing the kingdom of God is based on on following the teachings in Scripture. Practicing the kingdom is done in community or fellowship with one another. Practicing the kingdom involves breaking bread. Practicing the kingdom involves devotion to prayer. Practicing the kingdom involves proclaiming the kingdom of God by living out that witness in our lives. What Acts invites us to is that opportunity to practice the kingdom of God. Using the perfect example of the early church, their willingness to be there for one another, to sacrifice for one another, to have community with one another, to share table fellowship with one another, that is what God has invited us into. And if we follow that example, we too will experience growth. But it's hard work, and it takes commitment. And it takes putting your needs sometimes at the back burner and saying the needs of my fellow believer are more important than my own. And so this week, that is what we are invited into. The same call, the same uh, offer that God offers us in Acts chapter 2. To be a fellowship that cares about one another. So my challenge is this. This week, find something in Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47 and lean into that. Maybe it's just reaching out to somebody and saying, hey, I'm thinking about you. How are you doing? Or maybe spending time in God's Word and saying, God, where are you leading me in this passage? Or maybe you can say, hey, I'm going to call this person that I haven't talked to in a while and say, hey, let's grab coffee or get food. Do something to live and practice the kingdom of God, because that's what God calls us into. Let's stand and sing together.